Hi, it's Pete Price, and my podcast this week I'm really excited about. This lady is powerful, she's passionate, she loves her family to the moon and back. But what I love about her is she gives back, she just doesn't take. She knows that she's been helped, but she is where she is today because of hard work. I love her. I first met her in Panto, she was a little girl. She uh, grew up with me in Pantos, and I don't know how it happened, but we became friends, and we are firm friends. She's the daughter I never had. I am delighted to say uh, she's just come off air on her award-winning breakfast show. Uh, it's Leanne Campbell. Was that intro all right? It was gorgeous. I'm a bit overwhelmed with that. That was lovely, yeah. And you're right. Yeah, I think one of the most important things or the most important messages I do try and put out all the time is to help everyone around you, especially in our industry. You rely on people to help open doors for you or to give you advice or guidance because especially within radio right now, I get so many people contacting me who are young and they're going to university and they have these high hopes of, you know, a job on radio. And I feel it's my job to almost ground them a little bit and say, okay, I know what you think you know, but let me tell you what you need to know. And there are rules and there are boundaries now that are so different to when I started. God knows what they were like when you started. Must have been like a free-for-all. Well, you used to wear a shirt, tie and suit. Go away. Yeah, for, especially for the BBC. You had to dress a certain way. You couldn't go in in jeans. What about what you could say, though, Pete? Because I find that is the biggest hardship of being in broadcasting today it's so difficult especially because i work within commercial radio so it's different you know you, you, it's a paid for you've got you, you know your sales aspect of the whole thing and you've got to tread a very fine line and legal training every year gets tougher and tougher at first it was just a use your head you've got common sense don't say something that's going to offend someone but now you can offend someone by not knowing you even could offend someone by saying you don't like cats or you know you're not fond of salt and vinegar on your chips people can complain now to Ofcom at the drop of a hat they can do it on the dinner break and you're accountable and you've got to be within the guidelines so it's not a problem interesting you say that but let's stay with broadcasting or in fact let's go back to broadcasting in a minute Tell me who Leanne Campbell is, the side that we don't know. Uh, you give an awful lot on radio, but who are you? Okay, so to describe me or to, to let you in to a side of me that you might not know, you've got to go right back to me childhood. So I am the daughter of a lagger, a granddaughter of dockers and, you know, men who've stood up and marched and, and fought for things to be changed, for bad things to become good things. And I grew up with that. I remember performing in social clubs at the age of five and six, um, trying to raise money for um, friends of my dad's that we knew, that you know that would come round to our house and have coffee with my dad. And, you know, men that we knew who died on sites because of, you know, Thatcher and the, the, the health and safety laws that weren't in place so I grew up with that from a very early age so when you listen to me on the radio you're probably like oh you know she's a bit of a laugh and she says that and the other but I think that the backbone of me is I've got a massive massively strong sense of injustice and I think when you know me that's blatantly obvious you've watched me Pete in scenarios where I can't sit back can I if I think something's wrong or someone's being mistreated 
I'm always there. And that's probably, it's probably one of the, the bad things in this industry for me to be a bit of a maverick and be a bit outspoken in that way. You know, I can happily toe the line when it comes to me, when it comes to anyone else. I find it really hard to sit back. And I think out of everyone, you've probably seen that the most. Since well, tell me, because of that, how have you coped with growing up as you've grown up mm -hmm. in a man's world? Tough at the start of it. I remember starting radio piece and it was all like, um, hey, be part of this website. And it was like for women on radio. And I clicked this link and it was women holding the microphone, topless or in bikinis and stuff like that. And I was like, this is the norm. This is normalised. Women around me were on the radio doing a brilliant job. Fantastic broadcasters, loads to say. And yet I was looking at the pictures, which I know can be really empowering. A lot of women find it's very empowering to be photographed nudes and, you know, cheers to that, you know, if that works for you brilliantly. For me, as an early 20-something brand new to broadcasting woman, that didn't really sit well for me. That was something I was never going to be a part of. So I had to find my place where I stuck true to my accent because, you know, opportunities have come about where if you can just drop the accent, maybe you'd work elsewhere and in other cities. And we all know about, you know, networking now and how it's much easier and cheaper to have one show that's broadcast right across the country. Yet you can dilute your accent and you can try and fit into a certain box. I think I decided really early on that what made me proud to be in radio is that I was one of the very few, I can't think of another woman with a Scouse accent, who went on radio and spoke in the same voice, using the same language as she would speak to her friends or It's interesting interrupting you there. There were a couple of people who were Scousers on radio, men mm. and women, yeah. but they were educated by the BBC to lose their accent. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. actually when they got the job, it was part of the job to lose their accent. Yeah, it was a it it's it's been a struggle to keep it. It would have been much easier. I'm I'm theatre trained, I'm an actress by trade. So it would have been so much easier for me to to drop the accent and then see what other jobs came about. Firstly, I'm not good outside the city. I went and trained in London and it didn't last long. I love where I'm from. My family are here. And with radio, you do get opportunities to go and work in Dubai or go and work in Australia. The Scouse accent actually is probably easier to market in Dubai or in Australia than it is in the UK, which is weird. I like to say, I'd like to add, though, things are changing. And I think podcasts have changed that. Probably over the last five years, we're hearing more accents and we're hearing an unpolished side of broadcasting and these podcasts that are getting millions of you know listens and they're getting great traction they're doing theater tours you don't have to fit into this box that we were all taught you had to learn to become part of this cut and paste broadcasting catalog so when did you discover you could sing <laughs> act and you never thought you were going into broadcasting never never i'd said no so many times it just wasn't for me theater and singing and all that, and I know if you listen in the mornings, if you tune into Radio City, you're probably going to go, not a chance, you might say, call bullshit on this. But truth be told, my mum was so worried about me because I was so shy, really painfully shy. I used to follow her everywhere. She tells a great story about until I was probably six, she never had a wee without me. I'd literally sit on her knee. 
because my dad worked away as well. He was on the oil rigs and stuff. So I think I was just really nervous of my mum going anywhere. So I was so stuck to my mum like glue. It became a bit of a concern for her. So a, a best friend of mine, Rebecca, and her mum tried to encourage me to go to dancing. So it was called Glitter Dance on County Road. And we used to walk up from St. Francis de Sales School. We get curry and chips or gravy and chips with either Veron, uh, Rebecca's mum, or me nan, who do alternative of weeks. And we go there and do a couple of hours of dancing. And then the teacher pulled me mum. Now, my mum at the time, she was running a printing firm in Pall Mall. Again, something very bizarre. None of her mates were doing it. My mum went back to university at 40. You know, she was a bit like me, a bit of a maverick, quite happy to take a chance. And she was a risk taker. So she's busy with this printing firm in Pall Mall. And she comes to pick me up and the teacher asked her to come in. She said, there's a school, a full-time school called Elliot Clark. And I think Leanna would be brilliant. You know, it's not normal for me to recommend that someone who pays money to come here every week is to go somewhere else and pay the money elsewhere. But... I think she'd benefit from it. So my mum looked into it and I went for a trial week and I got a place at Elliot Clark Theatre School, which was on Rodney Street. We worked at nine in the morning till two in the afternoon. Then we walked down to Crane's Building in our hat and socks and posh little uniform. And we danced till late in the night. Now, for me to do that, and this is why I'll forever be grateful, Pete, my mum had to work overtime. My dad was working away. My nan and granddad used to leave little envelopes of what they could save behind the clock in the living room. My family paid for me to go to that school because I was shy, because they thought it might lead to something or it just might help me in later life. And that's the beginning of my story that led to me going on tour with Annie Newley, getting the part of Annie and, you know, being the resident Annie at the Playhouse Theatre. I celebrated my 13th birthday backstage dressed as Annie as part of this company that came up from London. Opportunities that if I didn't do anything again for the rest of my life, I look back at and I think, yeah, I was blessed. Yeah, I obviously had a little bit of talent and I worked really hard at it. But more importantly, my family did that for me. And that's why, sitting here, that's why at 42, I would do anything for them. I, and there's a massive part of my life every single day of the week. My family are involved in everything I do. And that's why you give so much back as well. People mm -hmm. have helped you, so you help them. Yeah, absolutely. And that goes for my family. That goes for people in the industry. Yourself, I've been able to call you in the middle of the night when I've gone through troubles or struggles or my moral compass has been all over the place. And I've been like, I'm going to have to stand my ground with this. Pete. What would you advise? And you've given me honest, honest advice. Whether I've taken it or not is another thing. But I could call you any time at any age and ask you anything and there's a few people in the industry that I look at and I think without you would I have made the decisions I've made would it have led to the journey that I've been on I don't think so it's hard for people to go into the business now isn't it because there's not that many opportunities or am I wrong I think there are different opportunities I think in radio you're right I think you know to, to break into radio now there's so few jobs Lots of stations are networked. They come from London. They come from Manchester. There are very few local shows. You see it in the news all the time. Anybody can research that and see exactly what's going on in the radio industry. And there's a reason for that. Mostly financial. You know, I imagine as a business, it makes sense. It's sad 
for us. It's sad for the listeners. It's sad for the local broadcasters that have done it all their lives. It's what they're trained to do. It's what they're experienced to do. I laugh at it and think of it like, you know, take any career like a dentist. Imagine a law being passed, which is what happened, which allowed the government to say, do you know what? We only need 10 dentists. And we're going to put one in London, one in Manchester. You know, it's it's bonkers to think of any other industry dealing with what the radio industry is going through. So then every other dentist that's trained to do that job, that's got all that experience and is really bloody good at it, has to go and work on Amazon or go and do something because that's what they're trained in. They also don't understand. Years ago, when I first went into radio and you weren't born or you were a little girl, mm-hmm. um there was about nine producers. There was so many people working yeah. on the shows. Now you're the producer. You, yeah. a lad, and 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 Scott, yeah. work every hour God sends off the radio, yeah. putting the radio together. Yeah, it's totally different, isn't it? And because so much has to be cleared now, because we've got these very strict guidelines and things like that. With competitions back in the day, just going back twenty years when I started, I remember sitting in board meetings, and it was like, right, Leanne, you're an asset because you've got a creative mind. You know the city and you know the listeners because I was a listener of Juice FM so I came in and was like okay what about we do this what about we give a boob job away what about we do a race to the studio the first one here wins a boob job you know that was the kind of radio we were doing just bonkers stuff off the cuff and the listeners loved it and it was brilliant and Juice became this tiny little niche station into what, 10 years, eight years later? I remember standing in London winning a Sony Award. I remember sitting. You were there? I can see you at the table now and I went, you're going to win. I, I can see you right now. That's a moment I'll never forget. Yeah. Standing there, up on that stage, as a Scouse woman, doing a breakfast show to a local audience. We weren't trying to appease, you know, the the legalities of things. I don't even think I knew them, to be honest. But we weren't trying to, you know, appease everyone. It was like, if you like us, listen to us. And if you don't, you don't have to. It's fine. There's other alternatives. And we had this great cult following. And it was brilliant. And it was, again, radio change. Change has happened. And and we learn and we grow and, and we change. You said a little while back that you fought not coming into radio. What was the final, was the one final blow, apart from the money, yeah. was the one final blow you went, right. It definitely wasn't on the money. I'll, You know me, I'll <laughs> always tell you the truth. I was on probably about 50 quid a show, probably not even that, I don't even think. I think my yearly invoice was about 11 grand a year. So when people go to me, why do you do all these other jobs? I'm conditioned to never rely on radio. I'm always doing all these other jobs because we can be dropped like a hot potato. In a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Someone, a new boss comes in, they decide they go in a different way and you're gone. Every year I say to my husband, if I get one year out of it, it's great. I don't for one minute feel like anyone owes me a living in radio. I've had a good run and I've loved it. And I feel like I, I've, I've done my bit. I'd love to do it for the rest of my life. That'd be brilliant. But, you know, we know how radio works. So when I was offered the job, first of all, I was like, mm, I can't I can't speak without someone giving me a script. I was trained. I was doing theatre. Give me a script. Show me the role I've got to be and I will go and I will be it. And that's how I earned a living. That was my craft. And that's, you know, what I did. But coming into radio and just putting a mic in front of your face and going, you've got to talk until that number on that clock changes to this number. That for me was like, hell, I can't do that. I've got nothing to say. And the fact that I went in and did it was only because, and again, this says a lot about who I am, 
the owner played, looking back, he played a blinder. It wasn't true, it was a lie. He called me up and he said, um, I'm stuck. I'm, I'm stuck. You, you're going to have to help me. Someone's gone off sick today. I've got nobody to read the traffic and travel. You're local. You can do this. Please, please, please help me out. I didn't ask what the money was. I did it because I was helping someone out. And I loved the station. And I thought, go on, I'll go. I can read traffic and travel. I couldn't because I couldn't log on to a computer. So I made it up. And by saying, it's chocolate on Scotty, it's even on Upper Parley. They were the words used. It's even on Upper Parley. The phone lines went berserk. I was nicknamed Scouse and I was offered a job on The Breakfast Show. Simple as that. Mm-hmm. That's amazing, that. It's amazing. Because I've had, over my years, I've had actors fill in for me when I'm on holiday and they've been garbage without a script. Isn't it just, it's a totally different craft. Totally different. And I would never have thought I would have been able to do it, but giving it a go, that's one of those things. Like, I teach at the moment, I teach performing arts on a Wednesday, and I love that day with the young ones, and they're telling me what they want to be. I've got one girl, Georgia, she wants to be a dancer in the Moulin Rouge. Nothing else in this world is going to beat. And you've been to see it? I've been to see it. That's a hell of a job. She wants to go to Paris, Pete. Oh, and do it there? She wants to be in the Parisian Moulin Rouge. I've got this girl who comes on the train on Maiserail every day to learn how to dance and hear dream. And she doesn't take for a minute that's not going to happen. She is going to be on the Moulin Rouge. And I believe her. I believe wholeheartedly I'm going to buy a ticket and watch this kid be part of the Moulin Rouge in Paris. And I think when you've got that drive and you know what you're going to be great at, brilliant. I was always a little bit... I loved theatre and I always ended up getting jobs in musical theatre, but I loved comedy and I never got to do comedy. So... And you are a funny person by nature. You've got a great sense of humour. Your delivery is great as a comic. So I understand that. I would always try and lean towards the comedy and anything, but it just wasn't offered to me. So when I got a chance to do radio, I could actually just be me. And me can be be funny, you might disagree, but me can be funny. And I think that opened a whole different side to me up. It gave me a confidence in... I don't have to play a part. I don't have to be directed and produced. I can actually take ownership of something. And that was a radio show. And that changed who I was as a person. Wow. Let's talk, Panto. (laughs) How many have you done? I've lost count. There was an article... How many did you think? Well, at the Echo ran something on me. They counted 20 Pantos. And that was possibly 20 years ago. Oh, goodness. I know. So maybe 50 pantos, Possibly, even more, possibly, even yeah. Because yeah. I went through a run where I was doing half-term pantos, Easter pantos, Christmas pantos. I was doing three, four a year at one point. And I started when I was 10 years old. And I have missed one year's panto to give birth. That was to Joseph. He's 14 this December. Where's that time gone? I, w- I missed one panto to get married. I got married on New Year's Eve Eve on the 30th of December. I was at the wedding. You was. I've still got your Prezi. And... Have you opened it yet? <laughs> yeah, they have. It's a lovely little lunchbox with medals in. I won't explain it more, but it's lovely and it's still there with all my stuff. I have booked this Christmas off. What? I know. To stop it. Honestly. You're taking a Christmas off. I oh, am. my word. Let's talk about Panto. When you were 10, it was a different animal. Yeah. I thought it was spectacular. Yeah. I understand now it's changed, and we know Chantel, yeah. uh, who has the St. Helens Theatre and had the Epstein. Yeah. But I love the early days of Panto before yeah. they wanted three shows. Yeah. But let's talk about the kids. Now, we got to know each other. You worked with men many yeah. times. 
But there was a discipline, but not the discipline that went on old later. I want to see how I can put this. What I loved is the kids would come and bring you some sweets yeah. and you'd buy them a present yeah. and they'd get a wage. But then all of a sudden, because of health and safety, because of what's going on in the world, it changed, didn't it? Yeah, so the life... Can you remember it changing? Yeah, it was... Yeah. Do you know what? It was... The, the best memories you can give a kid is if they're that way inclined, if they're into performing, to put them backstage in a panto is wonderful as long as it's safe. There are so many dangers backstage in a theatre. And that's why, you know, my youngster, my youngest, our Annabelle, she's into performing arts now. With both of my kids, I'll always sort of steer them away from performing arts and from radio. And, and maybe that's just because... You know, I've been there, done that, and I've seen both sides of the coin. If they want to do it, I'll support them. But I would never push them towards it in any way. Sad because, like I say, the memories I've got. Back in the day, I was 10. I was getting dropped off by my mum. And you got dropped off in your ballet tights, your leotard, your full face of makeup, your hair tied up and hair sprayed the way it was supposed to be in a dressing gown. So that's... Coming from home, coming that from was home. done ready for the theatre. Yep, and you were dropped off at the stage door where a chaperone collected you. You went upstairs, you took off your dressing gown, you put on your costume and the rules were there. They were strict. You couldn't speak to the grown-ups. You weren't allowed to engage with the, the adult cast. You had to be safe at all times. You've got pieces of scenery flying in left and right. You know, fireworks, pyrotechnics. You had to be part of this group that didn't step outside of the rules. So for a little one to learn that at such a young age and take that through life, that's priceless, really. I think that's what's given me longevity in this career, as in going into roles as an adult then, stepping in as a grown-up into the role of the princess, auditioning, going through the ranks. Once you got that adult role in a panto, the production company were like, this this is a godsend. This girl comes in, she's off book. She knows every word. We're not teaching her the, the songs. We literally just have to show her what side she's coming on, director. She, her costumes are kept well. A dressing room can be immaculate. She's never going to miss a cue. And that came from being a little one. We might have only had three dancers in the whole show, but we were part of that show and we learned the rules of theatre. I've got to tell everybody now, ladies and gentlemen, off book means you've learnt the script. It was the one thing that pissed everybody off that worked with her. The first day, she was word perfect. She was a pain in the arse. We used to go, oh, my God. God, <laughs> it was funny when you oh, look back because you were, yeah. you knew everything. I had no kids, I had no breakfast show, I was just a working actress, so I had my days. I could sit and lay in all my scripts, it was brilliant. Mm. Cut to now, Pete. I've got the kids to look after, I've got the dog, I've got my job. I don't know what it is, but now I'm definitely not that person. I'm, I'm there mm. day one, panicking. The Here's script. the hardest question, so I'll ask you three. Ask me anything. Instead, no, no, it's the hardest question because you can't... Well, I'll ask you the question. Ask me then. One only panto that you love more than anything in the world. That's why I was going to ask you three. Straight away, Aladdin at oh. the Empire. Right. Nothing beats an Empire panto. Right. Nothing, nothing. And if the day comes back that they come back, I will dance in the streets. I think for you to go either in the audience to an Empire Panto or to be part of the cast or the crew or to be working at the Empire Theatre, I can't even explain that magical environment from day one of rehearsals right through to the final performance. You're a family, aren't you? 
And my first panto was at the Empire seeing it. It was a man called Dickie Valentine, yeah. who was a big, big star. And I said, one day I want to be there. So I know exactly what you mean. I when I walked thing. on that stage, I broke my heart. I used to go with my nana granddad on Christmas Eve. And I was a tiny, tiny person, probably seven or eight. And I can remember sitting there thinking, wow, can you imagine being part of that and to be part of it is something else but I would definitely say the year we did Aladdin there was me you Ray Quinn there was gorgeous Adam Curtis the whole gang Joe our genie Lewis Lewis he was our oh no he was Captain Hook to Captain Hook yeah that was Peter Pan yeah that was another oh, one sorry that sorry. was brilliant so uh, so Aladdin we didn't we had the genie yeah we had Joe our genie yeah we had oh Joe yes of course Joe. Adam Curtis yeah. who was our policeman yeah. you had Ray Quinn you had me we had um, we had a, just a, the most amazing cast we had Claire Sweeney she was genie of the lamp. And she just had the baby. Yeah. Don't you remember? We both Because we were all babies. breastfeeding. Yeah. <laughs> I was standing there and Claire Sweeney's yeah. baby in rehearsals yeah. while mine was in Gretsch. Jackson, her son, <laughs> knew me for years only as the Emperor of China. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got family members, cousins that grew up thinking I just always wore a princess dress because they only ever saw me at Christmas. <laughs> but you are a princess, let's face well, it. Well, I try. That's I, another story. I'm a scouse yeah. prin, aren't I? I'm learning that this podcast I'm doing with Leanne Campbell has got to be a part two, part three and a part four. <laughs> this is ridiculous. I've got to ask a straightforward question. Why did you write a play called Pete Price is Dead? Because I just felt like, yeah, we'd all become warm to the Pete Price is a Lizard thing. At first, I was dead upset about that. I was like, why are they picking on you? What's going on? Why are these people like this? Then I did start warming to it and I did start finding it funny. And then I checked in with you. You were finding it funny as well. It was okay to laugh at it. I thought, okay, what can we do here? Because you're such a big personality. The thought of, and the amount of, <laughs> this sounds terrible, the amount of death threats you've had over the years I thought <laughs> P Price is dead as a headline no matter what the play is going to be I think that might sell tickets did you just think of it one day yeah I do I was watching um, the is it called Midnight at Bernie's or something like that and it's where there's the dead body and they're trying to get them this dead body oh, yeah, around yeah. I thought how funny would that be on a stage be really good who would you have as the dead body who could die in scene one that people would still be interested in seeing being dragged around till the end. And you were the first person that came to mind. Could you believe on the opening night at the Royal Court, and sadly, we we did have the show, so we, we and then the pandemic closed us down. Yeah, yeah. But could you believe you were sitting watching, well, you were on stage, but when you were in rehearsals, you were watching something you wrote? No, there was a moment looking back at it and seeing the stage. We had a revolving Radio City Tower. It was a tremendous set. What? Tremendous was that? set. The team at the Royal Court are outrageous, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. Everybody. You've got, you know, as developers, you've got Stephen Fletcher, you've got your backstage crew, you've got the people who every show, and you might not know this, they build that set from scratch. They have a premises on Islington and they literally design and build all in-house. They're not renting it in from anywhere else. Every single show you see, the Royal Court does that, and ours was no exception. So they decided on this revolving Radio City Tower. So every time a scene changed along, like a big carousel, spun the set. And at the very end, do you know where I stood at the very top and there was a bit of a, a shootout scene at the top? It was so slapstick. It was a brilliant, brilliant show. But to watch that and see the Radio City Tower revolving in an empty theatre and looking at you and thinking, there are moments in life that you just don't ever forget. 
And that's one of them. And because of COVID, I look back at it and I think, did that actually happen? Was that was that really a thing? Were you sad about the COVID thing? About us closing yeah, down, closing down yeah. early? No, I wasn't. If oh. I'm dead honest, I wasn't. I had some fabulous, fabulous nights. Friday night. And again, I was lucky with this because all my family and friends came. To see it. So did mine. Same as yours. Yeah. They booked out the first week. We had the Friday, we had the Saturday, we had the Monday. It was full of all my people. There's mm. nobody, there's nobody I know that goes, I wish I'd have got to see that. They all saw it. And usually you'll get, if you run a show at the Empire, you get your Tuesday, your Wednesday, your Thursday, your Friday and two shows on a Saturday. So you'll get like six, seven, maybe a matinee on a, on a Wednesday. So for me, it felt like I run at the Empire. It felt complete to me. We did it, we built it, we rehearsed it, we got it on its feet and we had packed out audiences. And they loved it. And they loved it. I was only with someone, there was a Liverpool Fringe Festival earlier on in the week and I was talking to someone who just came over to me and said, I saw P. Price is Dead, you know. I said, wow, did you? Did you go like the first night? She said, it came the Saturday night. She said, and we absolutely loved it and we booked again. But it was cancelled. She was mm. going to come and watch it twice. What was very flattering about that show, Leanne, is when it closed down because of the pandemic, virtually every single person moved their tickets. Nobody wanted the money back because they wanted that. to see it so much. And yeah. I was sad that the Royal Court has never shown it again. But that's another another story. <laughs> um, the line, He's just getting it in there if anyone's yeah, listening. The line, the line, well, they've still got the set. They, they have, still yeah. have never got the set, which is always a good sign. Yeah. Uh, but the line that I loved, I wear a watch, and it's always been a joke, uh, that belonged to Liberace. It's covered in diamonds. And Leanne always said, am I having that? And you wrote it into the play. <laughs> and I've died. I die about three times. Mind you, if you saw my act, I die regularly. <laughs> but I die about three times, and the first thing you did, was take the watch off me. He wanted, he wanted me to have it. <laughs> I know, do you know what? It's so funny because people will ask me that. I talk about it on the radio show all the time. Um, there was a, you know when someone said you were dead? Remember recently someone thought you died and there was like a rumour going around that he's dead and you had to come out and say, no, I'm not, I'm actually sad. The amount of people that messaged me and went, you're getting his watch. And I was like, Oh, come on. But seriously, please, I am getting the watch. All right, you're getting the watch, are you? And the other line was um, Stephen Fletcher's brother, Michael, who I adore. And I've collapsed. I've had a shock. I've had an electric shock. And he said, what what are you supposed to do? Piss on them? And you say something. And he went, no, that doesn't work. He went, well, let's piss on him anyway. Like the old friend scene. Some great, right, yeah, yeah, some great lines. Really, really good. And it was, nobody can ever take it. You did it? Yeah, did it. It It was a little idea that I pitched to you at Aintree Racecourse on Grand National Day many, many years ago, pitched it to the powers that be at the Royal Court and we made it happen. And yeah. that, I think that's And it happened very way. fast as well. Yeah, there was did. none of that dragging out. It no. was like, we'll do it, this is the date. It and snowballed. Yeah, they loved it. Yeah. They loved it. It was great. Um, where do you think you're going with your career? I mean, you are now realising and taking stock how your family has grown up very fast and you've yeah. got your mum and dad who are getting older yeah. and you're spending more time with them. Mm-hmm. You've also got a tremendous circle of friends. Will you take it easy a bit or not? Oh, every year I say. That's why I've got I know taken, you say it, that's why I'm asking I've you. taken pants off and I'm like, that's it, now I'll take it easy. And instead, I've taken on loads more work throughout the year to sort of compensate because, you know, we're self-employed and we do have to just, like, try and keep on top of things. And if there's work coming, we'll take it. It's hard for me to say what the future holds because 
radio, the radio landscape's just ever changing, isn't it? Year to year. And I know there's, you know, there's another policy that could be signed off, you know, by the government and that will mean more changes. And we're all just living in hope that local radio will have its place. But I think we're seeing that people are taking the risks and getting rid of it. So I don't know how long I've got on breakfast radio. 20 years is a long time. I know it's hard getting up in the mornings and not a lot of people last 20 years on breakfast radio. I don't think I know anybody else who's done 20 years. Few people have done 20 years, but they've become alcoholics, had major problems with their health, seriously. Yeah. They really have because the pressure's there. People don't understand. You've got kids. Yeah. You pick your kids up from school. You're you're a proper mum. Yeah. The, The kids... Come before anything. Yeah. In fact, do. I went round to your house once, and your daughter, when she was younger, would not allow me to use her toilet. That's my toilet. Go to the other one. I'll never forgive they are her for that. Gorgeous. I adore them, and I do. I do worship my family, and they will always come first. This is. I keep saying to them every year, "Do you want me to chew panto?" And they go, "Yeah, go on," because they know it pays for the summer holiday. So it got to the point where I was like, "These kids aren't going to tell me to stop doing panto. I'm going to have to say it on my own." So yeah. I, I would love to still be doing this in another 20 years. Yet I've somehow managed to not become an alcoholic. I've still somehow managed to keep me life in some kind of order. That, again, is the theatre discipline. It's the old school mentality. It's a job. It's you, just a job. You must be getting more sensible as you get older because I've just learned something about you I never knew, so that what? pays for the Somalis. I honestly <laughs> thought it paid your tax bill. You used to come and go, I've got to work. Yeah, yeah, it does, it does. So but you are being more sensible with your money. I am. I'm trying my best. I am. I am trying my best. It's hard with kids because now they've reached an age where there's like skiing yeah. trips with school and stuff. Leanne, how can they find people find out more about you? You can find me on social media. Just go to Leanne Campbell Powered on Instagram. A lot of my life's on there. I do keep some stuff back. And you might look at my Instagram page and think, oh, yeah, we know everything about Leanne and we see it all. You know me Mm. and you know. You're private. I am. I'm private when it comes to real life and that's relationships and that's friendships and things that we all go through especially when you come into your 40s and you're going through some stuff you lose people along the way and you go through grief and you go through all this stuff that you look at instagram and you think no one wants to know all that size of of life so i do keep a lot of stuff mm. private and i keep that so it's just me and me mates and me family told a little bit of a fib you are doing panto this year but it's recorded <laughs> what are you in this year do you remember when you was the magic mirror I do indeed. So we're doing the Empire. We were doing Snow White. I was the Wicker Queen. And this fella here got the brilliant job of the Magic Mirror, which meant he filmed his role in an afternoon and then spent the rest of Christmas with a box of Quality Street on the couch, sucking on a mince pie. And I was like, please, I'm getting that role. At some point, I'm getting a role like that. And it's this year. So you can go to the Theatre Royal. They do the best pantos. They They couldn't get any more in. They pack every single thing into it. You're worn out at the end of it, aren't you? But it's it's West End quality, though, isn't it? The Theatre Royal, it's so slick. So from sound, light, you know, special effects, you get it all there. But this year, I will be Genie of the Mirror. So it's Aladdin. I'm Genie of the Mirror. I've been with them, helping them with the script. It's as funny as it gets. It really is a brilliant script. And I get to be at home with the kids after press night. Press night, I'm going to be there. I have said, and it is in my contract, I might turn up and do an appearance yeah. throughout the yeah, run. Yeah. A little secret appearance. So if you've got your tickets already, if you've been to theatreroyal.com, then you might already have your tickets. And I could just be popping up. 
Johnny... Vegas. Vegas he did, did that. He yeah. But he made an appearance and was absolutely filthy. <laughs> I won't he do said that, bad I know you won't, but it was absolutely... I went and I went... Oh my, he yeah. said, I've been told. And then that yeah. was it, he started. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have promised. So Leanne Campbell, it. actress, singer, broadcaster, writer, we've got to mention before we finish, designer? <gasps> my word, oh. what's all this about? So you get to my age, call it a midlife crisis or whatever, I was like, right, I keep hearing this phrase, a busy fool. So I'm busy doing all these different jobs. Like you said, you list all these things off and you've got to prioritise what actually do I enjoy doing? What gives me life? And one is the hosting duties. I love hosting events. Two is my podcast, Ladies of Liverpool. Three is fashion. And I do love fashion. And I teamed up with two gorgeous local girls who have been buyers for some massive retailers, high street brands, massive retailers, and decided they wanted to do it for themselves. And we made a little threesome. And the three of us together designed a clothing range. So if you want to have a little look at it, have a little nosy, just find at Buyers Club Clothing on your socials. And I always finish off every podcast Leanne Campbell advice for people out there who want to be Leanne Campbell. I would say be good to people. Be good to people and stick true to what you believe. When things are happening that are wrong, call it out. I've done it. It sometimes doesn't work out for the best, but in the long run, you look back and you're grateful that you did because if you're not calling it out, you might as well be doing it yourself. Look after everyone and in time, they'll look after you. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Why not subscribe? You know it's free. So join us and tell your friends. It's great going on walks and doing whatever you want to do and then putting P-Price on. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 interviews. Join us. Subscribe. It's free.